There are 28 Marvel movies right now that have been released. It's about to be 29. There are 28 Marvel movies. Who likes watching Marvel MCU sort of movies? Hands raised. Okay, you, you like those sort of movies. This amounts to around 5,567 hours of in, or 67 minutes of entertainment. So 5,567 minutes of entertainment if you would watch every Marvel movie, every television show to get you up to date for this next movie's release. That, that's, that's a lot of superhero action. I mean, we're talking days and days of superhero action. It'd be about three and a half days nonstop. If you watched it back to back to back to back, don't do that. That's not good for your health uh, to do. But the MCU has these big overarching narratives. And so you have these individual movies, but all these movies, they kind of build to this big overarching narrative in the different phases. And the creators will often let you know where they are going with the story through what's called Easter eggs. Now, Easter eggs, we usually think of something that we kind of hunt, they're hidden, and they have a surprise. Well, well, what happens in, in entertainment is an Easter egg is a hidden image, a reference in a movie that you discover only through careful observation that often foreshadows something to come in, in the larger narrative. So if you're watching these Marvel movies, uh, there'll be things in the background. There'll be something that somebody says in one of the early movies that'll come to fruition, almost prophetic, it'll come to fruition later on in the, in the narrative. And so like, for instance, in the first Avengers movie, I mean, we're getting kind of nerdy here uh, this morning. We will move on from superheroes, I guarantee you. Uh, but uh, you, you know, you have uh, Captain America says to Iron Man, you're not the type to make the sacrifice play. That was the very first Avengers movie. He says, you're not the type to make the sacrifice play. Well, what happens in the last Avengers movie, Avengers Endgame? Who makes the sacrifice play? Iron Man does. And if you're like, this guy's a nerd, you're kind of right. Uh, it's, you know, it's very nerdy to know this information. But you get the idea. You have these hidden references, these hidden, these hidden uh, it could be a conversation, it could be something in the background that foreshadows something that's happening in the larger story. The Bible works in the exact same way. We have this grand, overarching narrative. We have what's called salvation history. And what you find early on in scripture are Easter eggs, hidden references, images, types, themes that point to a main central theme that this narrative is about. And it's the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's salvation narrative, the redemptive arc, it all centers around the person and work of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And so if you read God's word carefully, you find Easter eggs even in the first three chapters of God's word. And so that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks. We're going to look at some of those gospel Easter eggs that we find in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books 
of the Bible that point to the overall redemption arc we see in Scripture pointed in the person and work of Jesus. So turn to Genesis 3. Please have your Bibles in front of you. If you don't have God's Word in front of you, I guarantee you, 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 it's going to be harder to pay attention. We follow along. We kind of read through a passage together. If you don't have a Bible, we got Bibles in the back for you. If you don't have a Bible, take it home. It's our gift. Um, it, it's God's Word. We, we, we pray and hope that it's a blessing to you. And so turn to Genesis 3, just a little context. The universe has been created. Animals have been named. Adam is dwelling with God in the garden. And there's no sin. There's no shame. There's nothing but intimacy with God. There's innocence. There's complete peace and rest. Sin has yet to enter the picture. And God says to Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. The garden over there, you can eat from that one. The tree over there, that's yours. That tree's yours. That tree's yours. That tree's yours. All of these trees, any tree you can eat from. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's that one, one tree. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so he says you can love and serve me or rebel by rejecting the one command I've given you. And so the story moves forward. God sees Adam is alone. He creates woman. Adam is like, I like he, uh, that. And uh, that, you know, they're in the garden together. Innocence, no sin, complete intimacy with one another, complete openness, innocence. And things are good for a while. <laughs> We're not told how long. But things are good for a while. Look at Genesis 3, 1. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than all of the, any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So, so in context, we aren't really told much about the serpent. We're not told how he got there. Uh, we're not told much. Later scripture identifies the serpent with who? With, with Satan, the deceiver, the accuser. Revelation 12, 9 speaks of an ancient serpent who leads the whole world astray, who, who deceives. We don't know, again, like I said, how the serpent got into the garden, but we know he's there uh, leading Eve into sin. He's tempting Eve, and he uses a number of different attacks to tempt her. And what's the first question he asks? Did God really say this? Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, God actually said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but one. And so notice what Satan does here. Satan adds a knot to the head of the clause. He subtracts the word freely from God's original command, and he makes it sound like an absolute prohibition on eating from any tree in the garden. And so he's twisting God's commands here. He's trying to make God sound stingy. He's trying to make God sound limiting. Don't, don't focus on what God has given you, all that God has given you, Eve. Focus on, on the one thing you're not allowed to have. Focus on what you don't have. Man, what a temptation we all face all the time. 
How often do we focus on, on what we don't have as opposed to all that God has, has freely given us? To add, it's very interesting. Satan uses the name Elohim here, not Yahweh or Yahweh Elohim. And you're like, well, what, what's the difference? Well, Yahweh was God's covenant name. It meant Lord. And all throughout chapters one through four, except these five verses with Satan and Eve, God is referenced as Yahweh or Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, God the creator. So, so you have this idea of Lord and submission with the term Yahweh, with his covenant name. Satan doesn't refer to God as Lord here, which is, again, a very interesting thing. He's, he's chipping away at God's character. He's chipping away at God's authority. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did not say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So so here's Eve's first mistake. She listened to the serpent. (laughs) The poison is already in her veins in a sense. And, you know, in one way she corrects the serpent. It's twisted words. She she incorrectly, though, adds to to God's commands. Well, she says, you know, he didn't say you can eat from any tree. He said, hey, you can eat from any tree except that one. But what she does is she too takes away the word freely from that command. So she downplays God's generosity and she adds to God's commands. God also said you couldn't touch it. Did God ever say that? No. God never said that to Eve. She downplays the freedom God has afforded her By removing as the serpent did the term freely, she adds to God's word. Look at verse four. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. He says, surely you're not gonna die. So here the serpent outright contradicts God's word. Look at verse five. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's like, nothing negative is going to happen to you. That, that, that death threat, it's just that. It's just, he's just, you know, he's trying to get you to not eat from the tree. You're surely not going to die. In fact, your eyes are going to be opened. Something good's going to happen. Your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to be like God. You're going to have the knowledge of, of good and evil. Now, what, what the heck is the knowledge of good and evil? Nobody really knows. Any scholar who says they definitively know that this is what the knowledge of good and evil is, uh, they're boasting a little too strongly. Uh, we, we, we don't really know what it entails. We know it makes someone like God in a way. Uh, it could be that Adam and Eve knew what evil was hypothetically, intellectually, but they didn't know the full extent of evil experientially. And so that could be the knowledge of good and evil. And man really can't handle that that sort of experiential knowledge without letting that evil taint them. I I think it's less about the properties of the tree and what the tree represents. And so what I think is happening is is God is saying, "You you can be discipled under me. Your wisdom, your values, your understanding of how the world works, morality can happen in submission to me Or you can turn to creation, 
and away from the creator and find your wisdom, your understanding, what you value, your moral compass away from God. So you can either obtain that wisdom under my care, under my supervision and submission to me, or you can try to attain that wisdom apart from me and be your own master. The serpent adds, you will be like God if you do this. What a promise. Every single one of us wants to be more than we are today. Like we want to be better at something. We want to, we want to you know, we upgrade our phone every year to two years. Why, why can't we upgrade ourselves? The self-help industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Books, conferences, podcasts, the, the whole shebang. Because it sells you on this diet, the idea that you're not where you are. You need to become a better version of yourself. I want to become a more efficient, faster, better looking Larry. I want a Larry 2.0 that doesn't struggle with these things, that doesn't deal with these things. And that's essentially what what Satan is tempting Eve with. God is holding out on you. He is holding you back. He is is holding you from that upgrade. You can be your own master. You can write your own rules. You can say, this is wrong, this isn't. You You can be like God. Satan is wanting Eve to believe that God is holding something back from her. So, since the garden, Satan hasn't gotten that much more creative when he tempts us. He has the same playbook. How many of you, your spouse does the same thing every day when they get up and, you know, they they do the same, they have a routine and all, all. Satan isn't that creative. He tempts us in the exact same ways today. And he doesn't come with with a pitchfork and and horns and uh, destroy our lives all the time. More so often than not, he, he twists God's word. And he he gets us to doubt God's goodness and generosity. That's how Satan is most effective in your life. Maybe God really isn't like this. Maybe God won't do this. Maybe God doesn't love me like this. He tells us outright lies or half-truths. He makes you hollow promises to well up in you a desire to be our own masters. He wants us to believe that God is holding out on us. Man, how much temptation in your life has been that? Just, you know, man, if you do this, Man, it'll be, feel really good. It'll be great. It'll be fulfilling. Is, is that promise true? No, it's hollow. We always leave feeling sicker maybe than when we started, wanting even more. And Eve takes the bait. Look at verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, this isn't just they slipped up. 
This isn't just that, yeah, everybody makes mistakes. You know, you know, they, 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 they let their selfishness and pride get the best of, of them. This is a clear act of conscious rebellion, treachery. It's throwing away submission for self-exaltation. It's trading the creator for creation. And, and all of creation is affected. All of creation is affected from this one moment. The suffering, corruption, strife, sickness, and pain we experience today in our world, it originates here. And we see the effects of sin already playing out in this passage. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So their eyes are opened, but not in a way that they expect. And we're going to see a few things here, but, but number one, their innocence turns to, to guilt. They go from being innocent to experiencing, for the first time, guilt. They're naked. That was a picture of just innocence, purity, without sin. But now they, they cover themselves. They run from God. The, the, these are acts of someone who has done something wrong. Number two, their intimacy turns to separation. Horizontally, a rift now exists between Adam and Eve because of sin. Every moment of strife with you and another person, every war, every broken relationship, every fight you've had with your husband or with your wife is because of sin. Sin destroys our relationships horizontally. Vertically, there's now separation. There's a rift between man and God. It's an alienation we experience today apart from the intervention and working of God in our lives. There's estrangement. There's distance. There's hiding. Now, what's the picture of God here, though? And, and we don't want to miss this. Does God let them be? No. God goes after them. What a picture of God we, we see in Scripture. Even early on, man has sinned. Man has disobeyed. But God goes after them. Now, this isn't a game of hide and seek where they're really trying to evade God. But, but God is more teaching them through this process. Where are you? I'm coming after you. Where are you? Who's done this? Look at verse 9 through 13. But the Lord God called a man. Where are you? He answered. I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to not eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. I mean, man and woman passed the buck. It would have been wise for them just to be repentant. I'm sorry. I've done this. I'm guilty. But, but man says, no, it's, it's her fault. 
and, and the woman says, no, it's her fault, and we've been blaming each other for our own mistakes ever since. No, it's your fault that there's strife. It's your fault that I do this. You make me do this. Eve eats, gives it to the husband. They run from God. Now, God, true to his word, is going to justly deal with Adam and Eve. The woman will experience pain and, and childbirth. And I've seen it firsthand. Doesn't look fun. There will be discord in her relationship with her husband. The earth under Adam's feet will be cursed. He will toil, then die. They're going to be banished from the garden forever. And so if you read on, what you see is that they go from life to death. So physical death entered the picture here. So when Satan said, surely you will not die, it was a half truth. Yeah, they're not going to die there on the spot. But one day Adam did die. 930 years he lived. But more importantly, apart from the intervention, the working of God, if we, if we die separated from God, we die what's called a spiritual death or an eternal death. Forever, we will be separated for, from God in the next chapter of life. So most people call hell. It doesn't get talked about as much anymore. God says you'll go from dust and to dust you will return. More importantly, spiritual death is a reality. Upon death, we will be separated from God forever in the next life if God doesn't intervene. Now, if you're like, man, if I was in the garden, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> Come on. Some of y'all are Christians, right? You got the Holy Spirit living in you. You, have, you literally have God in you. Do you still choose to disobey and rebel? Yeah. You may say, man, I, hey, this, what, is, you know, what does this have to do with me? This happened way, 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 way long ago. Uh, you know, uh, I'm a pretty decent person uh, today. It's hard because if you look at Romans 5, 12, it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and through death, sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. Adam introduced sin, guilt, death into the world. The entire human race is part of what went on in the garden. We've inherited that sin. We are fallen, predisposed to wrongdoing. We are guilty before God. Now, if you believe in your heart of heart that you're predisposed to good, that you're born good, just go babysit a two-year-old. I mean, do you have to teach your two-year-old to be selfish? No! What's, what's, other than no, which I got told by Laney the other day, hey, can I hold you? No. It's like, sinner. <laughs> I mean, what, 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 what early words does your child learn? Think about like what play. Mine. That's mine. Oh, and if somebody else has what you want, that's really mine. I watched it happen this morning. We had two kids playing. And, and one had a, a big, you know, magic stick, and the other was like, now I want it. This little kid wouldn't have wanted it if the other one didn't have it. That's just sin. 
We have to teach our kids to be good. We don't have to teach them to be sinful, to be bad, to be broken. Now, now they're not as bad as they, as they could be. They, they could be little hellions running around, biting people, drawing blood, stealing from our, 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 you know, our wallets and stuff like that. But sin has touched every part of who we are. We are guilty, separated from God, dead in our sins. Now, at this point in biblical history, it's just been, it's been a downward trajectory, man. It started good, but, but chapter three was this, this apex. You know, they're in the garden. Things are great. Serpent enters the picture and things just get very dark. How many of you were afraid of the dark when you were a kid? How many of you had a nightlight? A nightlight. Um, I, was, I was scared of the dark. And I was scared of being in pitch black darkness. I can remember being in my cousin's basement, sleeping in his basement. There's, you know, the walls saw the, were just, it was just kind of a dark, cold basement. The windows had these dark coverings on it. And so you couldn't see in front of you. It was maybe the VCR light was the only thing that was guiding your path. And, 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 and scripture here is dark. And it doesn't get much brighter as, as you read through scripture from this point forward for a while. What happens to Adam and Eve's children? Cain murders Abel. Abraham, the patriarch, lies. Joseph's brothers beat him and leave him for dead. God's people turn to idolatry. They rebel. They, they run from him. They get lost. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a dark episode in, in salvation history, but, but what you see are these little glimmers of light. Like lightning bugs in the Midwest. I miss living in the Midwest for very few reasons. Um, but weather, I, I miss rain, miss thunderstorms and going to bed. Uh, lightning bugs is something we don't have here. Just these bright lights that go on and off. And that's what we see in, in God's word. We see it all throughout the Old Testament, and we see it as early as Genesis 3.15, <laughs> right after the fall. Let's look at 14 first. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So among living creatures, the serpent is going to be cursed for what it represents. So whatever the serpent was uh, or, or looked like before this moment, I don't know if they had big, giant, you know, ripped arms or, or not. Like, I don't know what, what the serpent looked like before, but, but at this point, they would crawl. In, in Leviticus, crawling animals were deemed unclean. To fall on one's stomach before a king or a leader was an act of self-humiliation. To eat dust was an idiom, was a, was a phrase or a term that it was an act of, of humiliation. And, and snakes today are like, thanks a lot, serpent, for uh, what happened in the garden there. But look at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So post-fall, this is the first gospel Easter egg we see that points us forward to Genesis or to, to Jesus. Most scholars label this the proto-evangelion. 
Evangelion is good news. It's the first gospel. It's the first time God's intervention, God's saving work is mentioned here. There are a number of movies that give away the major plot points early on. So, so in James Bond, the movie Skyfall, very popular movie that came out a few years ago, in the opening credits, uh, one of the characters and, and, and the person who plays this character, their name is, is up on the screen over, so there's all these moving images, but once this name comes up on the screen, we see tombstones in the background. So with even in the opening credits, we are told that this person is going to die in this movie. If you go back and watch Skyfall, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So in the opening credits of, of creation, of God's world, of God's working with human beings, we see an Easter egg that points forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is already giving us a hint as to how things will play out. And from this verse, we find out that, that the battle with the serpent is far from over. Man will wage war with the serpent for thousands of years, but from mankind will come one seed in particular who will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will strike its heel. What is the author of Genesis talking about? Will Satan, evil forces, evil men, struck the heel of Jesus when they falsely accused him, when they beat him, when they tortured him, and when they crucified him? But Jesus struck back. A fatal, crushing blow to Satan. Jesus' death and resurrection, it was the serpent's death blow. Colossians 2, 13-15 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Then he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's talking about Satan and evil. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Your record of debt has been taken care of. Your sin has been taken care of. It has been paid for. Satan no longer has the power to accuse you before God. Satan's primary weapon has been taken away from him. He has been disarmed. Satan has been neutered. He has been defanged. He may have authority apart or over those apart from Christ, but if Jesus is your salvation, if you have placed your faith and trust in him, Satan no longer has reign over your life. He isn't your master. You don't have to give in to temptation. He isn't your king. Jesus is. And one day, we're told, 
that Jesus will come back and finish the work. He'll finish what he started. In Revelation 20, we're told that he's going to throw the serpent into a lake of fire where the serpent will have no influence. The serpent will no longer tempt. The serpent will, serpent will no longer lie and accuse. He will be put down. Through the work of Jesus, everything undone in the garden, instigated by Satan, is put, being put back together. Because Jesus paid for our sin, we're no longer guilty. We're innocent before God because we've been covered by the blood of Jesus. We've been reconciled back to the Father through Jesus' sin-atoning death. We are no longer estranged. There's intimacy once again between us and the Father. We can walk with him. We can know him. We can rest in God. We are sons and daughters. And nothing will change that. Furthermore, death has given way to life through the work of Jesus. John, Jesus says in John 5, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. In a sense, Jesus is now bringing us back to what life looked like in the garden. This was all foretold moments after Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. He will crush the head of the snake. In the beginning, we find the first of many gospel-themed, Jesus-centered Easter eggs that point to a, a good, merciful, sovereign and loving God who saves. Amen? Let's pray.